you're listening to the Voices in Education podcast, powered by Securely, where we hear from new voices and explore new ideas about how we can reimagine education to support whole student success. Education is at an inflection point. As we grapple with complex challenges like funding and enrollment, as well as diversity, equity, and safety, we also have an opportunity, an opportunity to reimagine education. Now more than ever, we know the importance that students' overall well-being plays in their success. They need to feel supported and safe and connected to be able to engage in their learning and achieve to their full potential. Join your host, Casey Agena, a former teacher turned instructional coach and technologist, as he interviews inspirational educators, school leaders, wellness professionals, and more to amplify their voices. You'll learn about the innovative work they're doing to support student safety, engagement, and overall wellness. And who knows, you may even spark a new idea of your own. Ready to reimagine education? Let's go. I'm your host, Casey Agena. And in today's episode, we are uncovering the challenges of getting more counselors and psychologists in our schools uh, and having them available for students and their families. Dr. Dennis Itoga is a professor at Chaminade University in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he is working on this pipeline. And we will also be talking about the challenges that he has had. Welcome, Dennis, and glad Thank you to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, you know, we had a chance to talk a little bit briefly uh, pre-show, but how has the past 24 months impacted your work and the communities that you serve? Well, when COVID came, it just impacted us instantly. It was almost something we had very little time to prepare for. And as we were quarantined and told by our state to stay home. It, we were blessed to, to be in the work that we do as and considered as essential workers because we all felt like we got to keep doing our work. The difficulty is we weren't prepared to do uh, comprehensive psychological evaluations, mm. um, which is what we do at Family Strengthening Center. Okay. Uh, contracted to work with children and families affected by child maltreatment. And it was essential for us to go from on-site evaluations to find a way to do tele-assessments. And with all the work that you do in conjunction with either the state, court appointed, whatever it may be, having that remote piece was, I think, really challenging because it's not only just hearing from folks, but it's seeing them in their environment, making those evaluations that are really crucial, I think, for them and information that's going to really put them on a trajectory towards uh, an end goal. Absolutely. Well, one of the things was we do lose a certain amount of abilities in assessing via tele. Mm -hmm. It's just because of the tactile or motor, motor kind of um, pieces that we might need for younger children. At the same time, we also were mindful of the need for to deliver the service. 
because permanency is the option, you know, is the is the outcome, the desired outcome is to reunify children once we identify their risk and provide treatment recommendations to strengthen families. You know, clinical psychologists have been uh, it's been challenging. I think not only for folks in Hawaii, but I think in all the rest of the 50 states or any regions that we're working on, one of the unique things that you also have as part of your professional work is not only as a clinical psychologist working with adolescent youth and families, but also as an adjunct professor and working with individuals who are wanting to be just like you and and jumping into this field. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your work there and what you're seeing from these students who are wanting to get into this pipeline of clinical psychologists. Well, first, I would hope that they don't want to be like me and they want to be like them. (laughs) But to be a competent and confident clinical psychologist, yes. And it is a new experience for me to be um, teaching at the college level. Uh, But what I see is, has been just amazing to see the, the hunger and the desire and the prospect of having clinical psychologists being prepared to address a shortage that we see here in Hawaii. We are short of clinical psychologists and largely in part to the pandemic, we see the mental health treatment needs, uh, serious harm occurring, domestic violence and increased substance abuse. You know, it reminds me of someone that I talked to a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We were talking to uh, folks out in the Northeast and there's school psychologists, which I know that are different uh, from a clinical, but a school psychologist working at the district there. And he identified through indicators coming up through the school social worker, through the interventionists and the classroom teachers that uh, there were two particular students, uh, a 14 year old and a 16 year old that really needed more support via a calling for help, some substance abuse issues and whatnot, but he was stuck. He didn't have a place to refer these two children outside of the district because there were no clinical psychologists to help him out. Is that pretty similar in Hawaii? In the beginning, just finding providers was very difficult. People were responding with their own family needs. And, you know, having their own children at home was difficult too. So the, the amount of providers went down. As far as the levels at this point now is very much similar, is we have wait lists and it's not. People are three to four months on a wait list trying to get these services. And that in itself at best, you're maintaining the problem or whatever uh, an individual child or an adult mm-hmm. or couple will present to a, a clinic or an office or a practice. And so th- there is a huge delay. Thinking about the youth and uh, across America and, uh, you know, they're dealing with different levels of trauma in school, whether it's uh, socially impacted in terms of how they relate peer to peer, if outcomes of that around substance abuse or other indicators that you know they're needing help, 
And then on top of that, if there's a lack of providers to help support them as they get older and they go through the system and the right levels of support are not there, we're seeing teachers and interventionists leave schools and then now there's more lack of support for these students coming through. What next? I mean, it's it feels like it's a challenge now, but for these 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds kind of coming through who really need our support and not having those support, I'm kind of looking ahead, like what's what's laying out for them and what are we doing in our roles to kind of help mitigate that? So one of the things I would suggest to <laughs> professionals in the field is to stay optimistic. One of the things that we had seen, at least from anecdotally from my point of view, is when children were at home, it also removed a great amount of supports for them regarding, for example, uh, mandated reporters. You know, you have more parents who are unemployed. They were stressed out. They didn't have the technology to do distance learning. After March 2020, there was a, a, a real lag in any services, meaningful services. And so we speed that up to today. I see the optimism. Children are back at school. Yes, we do have this new Omicron variant and people are responding to it in, a, in different ways. But what we see with the children is they're lighting up, being able to socialize, being able to engage with their teachers. And uh, it comes at a time where we need to strengthen not only our social workers, our clinical supervisors, or anyone who works with educational assistance, principals to stay optimistic in that sense, because uh, right now we also seeing a high level of burnout, as you mm-hmm. had mentioned. And I think that between the level of vicarious trauma that we see in the field with people struggling with their own families, as well as trying to still be service providers. And then seeing people leave the field altogether because it's taxing after mm-hmm. two years plus. So for me, the optimism that I see at the university, seeing this engaged and motivated and hungry and capable group of individuals at larger numbers than I had seen in the past Hmm. is promising. And I think that that particularly for Hawaii, I hope people stay here to practice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully they don't, they don't leave Hawaii, and I, I know that there are a lot of reasons for them to stay in the 50th state, weather being one of them. <laughs> it's interesting you say that what we're, we are seeing, we, we take interns and uh, postdocs, but we see a lot more applicants from the mainland. Mm-hmm. And as far as welcoming that, you know, we're looking to provide that training opportunity to have a skill set that it's very, very narrow mm-hmm. and um, to, to hopefully practice and to share that with others and to train others, They're basically in the spirit of just helping. And so that is one thing is we're constantly trying to train people so that one day we can be replaced. Let's take a short break to hear a word from our sponsor. The Voices in Education podcast is brought to you by Securely. 
pioneering the student safety movement in 2013, Securely continues to lead the charge in innovative education technology. As the only whole student success platform for K-12 education, Securely helps schools ensure student safety, increase student and family engagement, proactively support student wellness, and optimize student device and technology initiatives. More than 15,000 schools worldwide choose Securely to help them keep students safe, engaged, and well. To learn how Securely can support your school, visit www.securely, that's S-E-C-U-R-L-Y dot com. And now back to the interview. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, we're here. We have this opportunity to talk about you and where you work in Hawaii and myself, born and raised there and and understanding the cultural components of what makes Hawaii, Hawaii, this melting pot. There's also this challenge too, I think, with the cultural component with all these different ethnicities and, and folks that are there and how, how family units are organized and what that relationship is. Uh, how adolescent youth and their siblings, older, younger, fathers, mothers, grandparents. There's, it's really, I think, unique in terms of what you have to deal with in terms of how that relation works. And it's different, whether it's a Korean families or Samoan families or Native Hawaiian families. Tell us a little bit about that work and having that knowledge on working with families and children coming from uh, these different uh, cultures and ethnicities? So I think there's many different ways to talk about it. I think pre-COVID versus post-COVID, we've seen a dramatic change. Just, again, being mindful of the elderly family members and not knowing in the early on about the outcomes of COVID, just seeing on the news, it was a tragedy that we weren't prepared for, this disaster. And so people were staying separate. And that was different from a collectivistic point of view. Hmm. People weren't going out and socializing because of the state mandates. But also there was unknown factors. We didn't have the vaccine or the booster or any kind of information of what the outcome was. There was angst and how people dealt with that. Culturally, they took away some of the biggest protective factors from the melting pot mentality is the sense of social support and family. And I think that we are returning to that where people are comfortable with where they are with the vaccines and booster. And they're also hungry. I use that word again to socialize and to offer that support and to receive that support in ways that we had before. And at the same time, that's almost a relearning, right? Because we've had this period of time being away, speaking specifically about adolescent youth, when they come back into our school systems where there are other supports to uh, help them or even lack thereof, but they're coming into a, a system to do that, how they interact with both peers and adults at the schools are different than it was years ago. Right. And there are indicators of trauma, anxiety, 
that may not have been there before, but are showing up now. Knowing what we know now, and uh, I had this asked a while uh, a while ago, but I'll bring it up to you since we're at this point. Like, what have we learned, particularly from K twelve professionals as as these students are coming in back into our our schools and our classrooms, and what are we looking for to know that students really do need help and are struggling at home or with their peers and and it's a very different short history that they had being away that they're now coming back in. And uh, I think that's just the challenge, I think, for our uh, K-12 professionals on what to look for. So one of the words you used was, it's almost a process of relearning, mm-hmm. but I would also suggest that for the professionals in the schools to also continue to look at developmental trajectories as far as the ones who are children who are younger, this is their adaptability. This is their life. They have no real comparison, especially if they went through COVID before they developed it in language versus the adolescents who had a semblance of what normal was with sports, with cafeteria lunch, with sharing snacks, with after school care, with people, you know, going to be able to go to school with a runny nose, you Mm -hmm. know. It's where I see the adults who have an experience and the anxiety and fears, they just need to be mindful of that as well, because some who are returned to work, who have returned to work, are worried, especially in Hawaii, which 70% of our jobs related to tourism and hotel management. Mm-hmm. They're wondering, how is when's the next variant going to affect my work? When are we going to open up for international right. visitors? So. As far as the school, I think we're looking at how children adapt to social emotional problems. And one of the indicators that we look for is children either internalize or they externalize. If there's any differences of behavior and that takes a relationship, it takes a relationship with providers to recognize when a child is not behaving in ways that are protected of, of themselves. It could be not eating. It could be not doing their homework. It could be uh, not listening. At the same time, it could be shutting down. These are ways that many of the educators that it's part of their training to understand and to know that they can and be able to intervene. Mm-hmm. I think that's the you know, what have we learned question that is really highlighted here. We've learned that, yes, it's even more challenging than before. But at the same time, we are much more, I'm wondering, aware of it because as K-12 professionals, we were in, we're amongst it. We know what those inputs are of stressors. We know what those inputs are of anxiety, whether it's our work or environment or families, and then how that makes us feel. And some of those same inputs are related to the students that are coming into their classroom, yet how they internalize or externalize that is different, but it's still internalized and externalized in ways. And I think having that knowledge is what we can look for in supporting uh, students. You know, I want to highlight all the things that you're doing in uh, Hawaii as a clinical psychologist 
as well as working with the students as an adjunct professor at Hawaii School for Professional Psychology at Chaminade University, getting more folks into that pipeline, and ultimately always thinking about our adolescent youth, their families, and the communities for which they reside in. Thank you for your time. Thank you for lending your voice to Voices in Education. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices in Education podcast powered by Securely, where we hear from new voices and explore new ideas about how we can reimagine education to support whole student success. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with others who would benefit from listening. Even a small act of support helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact. For the resources from today's episode and additional details about the podcast, please visit www.securely.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening.